you know, remember years ago, the sort of the, the little WWJD bracelets? What would Jesus do? I, always, my, I remember my parents would scratch their heads and they would say, that's the dumbest thing. And if you're wearing, no, I don't mean to offend, but they were like, it's not what, what we know what did Jesus do? We know it. We know what Jesus did. We don't really have to puzzle over that, do we? We know what Jesus did, and it's contained in the Gospels. So I want us to look, as the body of Christ, at what the body of Christ, when it was one man, did. So let's turn to Matthew 9. <clears throat> you say, Phil, we just did Matthew. Are you just reheating leftovers? No, I'm doing that on purpose because hopefully it's still fresh. But also, it's, it's a different animal. When you, when you study something over a long period of time, you, you get one effect, and it's wonderful because you can stop and go deep on, on individual pieces. But I've been spending the last few weeks getting ready for the sermon, reading back through the Gospels, and, and I reread Matthew just again yesterday. And I'm telling you, if you have a chance, sit down and read it from front to back. All right? It's not that long. Sit down and read Matthew from front to back, and you're going to notice something, because when we stop and we stop and we stop, which is, again, great, you kind of lock in on one thing, but when you read it once, you go, man, this book's kind of repetitive. And I always tell my students, when they're annotating their texts in my English class, I say, they say, well, what should we look for? We don't want to fail your reading quizzes. I say, one of the things you can look for is repetition. If an author goes to the trouble to repeat something, guess what? They want you to get it. So I picked this passage in Matthew 9 because, strangely, it's like a lot of other passages in Matthew. So let's just glance at this. <clears throat> Matthew 9, verse 9, you just heard it. This is following, actually, a really impressive miracle. Jesus had just healed the man, the paralytic, who'd been lowered down through the roof. Big dramatic thing, right? healing the paralytic, and, 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 but, but before healing him, declaring that his sins were forgiven, thereby declaring himself God, and the Pharisees were up in arms about that, and what do we do? So Jesus at this point, when this story picks up today, he's well known. Everybody's aware of who he is and what he does. They're clear that he is making overtones of being the Messiah of Israel. They're clear that he can do miraculous things no one else can do. They're clear that when he preaches and speaks about the word, he does it in a way that everyone goes, I've never heard that before. That guy knows something. So Matthew would have known who Jesus was. It says, as Jesus went on from there, after this miracle happened, he says he saw a man called Matthew. In Luke, he's called Levi, same guy sitting in the tax collector's booth, and Jesus said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, if, if like me, you've been going to church since you were in utero, um, sometimes these things slide past us. We don't stop and pay attention. And I tell my students, again, you don't get any awards for reading quickly. Or if you do, those are dumb awards. You get awards for reading closely for slowing down, noticing detail, and asking questions. So let's slow down, notice detail, and ask questions. On the surface, Jesus walks by, follow me, he goes, he follows him. Boring, right? Let's stop for a second. He's a tax collector. Apologies to anybody who might work for the IRS, but how many people love tax collectors? 
You know? Historically, not the most popular people in the room, right? Not, not, not our favorite time of year, not our favorite thing to do, pay taxes. But let's add another layer to that. For whom is he collecting taxes? Rome, an invading, conquering empire. So it's one thing if you're giving your taxes to something that might actually benefit you. I read this article that there are people in Finland tend not to complain about their taxes because they're clear on what their taxes get them. They tend to say, ah, it's not that big of a deal because I get this and that and this and that out of it. But imagine if you're giving your taxes and it's not even going to you, it's going to somebody who's invaded your country. How do you feel about that? Super. I love it. Where do I write my check? So he's a tax collector. Don't like him. He's collecting for Rome. Don't like him. Number three, he's a Jew collecting from his brethren for Rome. So now we have the whiff of betrayal, don't we? It'd be and even one thing if they sent a centurion over to collect. You could kind of allow yourself some disgust for that. You're like, well, of course, he's collecting for his bosses. But Levi, Matthew, he's another Jewish guy. And he's taken from his Jewish brethren and given it to the bad guys. So we really don't like him. Oh, but wait, but wait, there's more. You say, how could Rome convince people to do this despicable deed, to betray their countrymen and take their money? Well, they made it legal to steal. They incentivized the practice of tax collecting by saying, here's the deal. If at the end of the week we need, say, 10 denarii from you, whatever you collect over that's yours to keep. As long as we get our cut, you keep the rest. So the kind of person who became a tax collector in first century Galilee, guess what? He was a man of fairly low morals. Because he'd already made a deal with the devil on about three levels to do what he's doing. And he didn't mind screwing over his countrymen to do it. So to say Levi's not a good guy is fair. And Jesus is walking by. Now, tax collectors, and if you remember what was just read, they're part of the sinner class. The, the, the religious leadership of the time had simply put people in a group. If they found them distasteful, if they found their practices bad, they just put them in a group and called them the sinners. Had I lived then, I'm certain I would have been in that group. The sinners. And the thing about sinners, which included the tax collectors, is if you interacted with sinners, what happened to you? You yourself became ritually unclean. So you couldn't interact with sinners without defiling yourself in the process. So it was very normal for anybody walking by, any, any, any Israelite walking by, to feel completely justified in saying, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. You're gross. Jesus walks by. He sees him. And he looks at him and he says, follow me. Now let's stop for a second and let's, let's pause it. What are some other things Jesus could have legitimately said that would have been within bounds for him? He could have looked and he could have said, hey, Matthew... You're disgusting. How could you? Did you not read the Ten Commandments? This is a pretty low bar, buddy. 
don't steal. Five-year-olds figure that one out. Don't steal. How could you? Shame on you. Shame on you. You go, oh, well, Jesus would never do that. Why not? Because he's afraid of that verse that says, in the way that you judge, you'll also be judged. See, Jesus was sin sinlessly perfect. And he does call people out. Do you, I mean, Jesus doesn't mind telling you if you're wrong, by the way. Did you know that? He'll chase you with the whip if he thinks you're wrong. On a couple of occasions. It's not like he isn't allowed to say this. But he looks at Matthew and he doesn't say, Matthew, I want to sit down and talk about this. You know what you're doing is terrible? Now, on the flip side, you know what he also doesn't do? He also doesn't do this. Excuse me, everybody. Excuse me, everyone. I just want to announce there have been some changes. We've been looking at the Torah. Stealing's not wrong. Everything's good here. Stealing's allowed and it's fine. It's funny. Jesus neither takes the time to address or condemn Matthew's sin, nor does he excuse or somehow eradicate the concept that stealing is sin. That's just not the point right now. What's the point? Jesus has first shot, first thing you say to somebody. And what does he do? He invites them into relationship. Join me. I want you in my group. I want you to be a part of my world. In my inner circle. Can you imagine? I mean, when was the last time anybody who wasn't a fellow sinner even spoke to Matthew? Let alone, when's the last time somebody said, I want to be with you. I want you in my life. I want you in my group. I want you a part of what I'm doing. Can you imagine how transformative this was? Well, the text tells us. Got up and followed him. I like the Luke version a little bit better. It says he, and this is the order, it says he left everything behind, stood up, and followed Jesus. Before his took us even got out of the chair, what happened? He said, I'm in. So profound was the invitation to relationship that his whole world changed because Jesus looked at him and said, come with me. So profound and transformative. If we stop there, that would be enough, right? But let's take it a step further because Jesus took it a step further. Matthew does what he knows how to do. He happens to have some buckaroos. Wonder where he got those. He throws a party. But who comes to the party? <laughs> the only people who can come to a tax collector party. Other sinners. Except, there is a notable sort of fish out of water story here. Who else comes to the party? God incarnate. The savior of the universe. The prince of peace, almighty God, the everlasting father. <laughs> Second memory of the triune Godhead. Just pops in for a meal. With his little band of merry men. 
It happened as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house. At this moment, Matthew, you know, wrote his gospel to Jewish readership. And at this moment in the story, this is where the pearl clutching goes on. You know what I mean? And Jesus was reclining at the table with tax collectors. <gasps> Clutch the pearls, everybody. Oh, 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 he's what? Oh, my goodness. This is where the pearl clutching happens. I mean, it's one thing that he spoke to the tax collector, but he's eaten dinner at his house with a bunch of other, it says, tax collectors and sinners. I can only imagine what the other sinners did. And they were dining with them. Again, he is, he is according to Pharisaical law, he is defiling himself to be at this meal. Do you understand that? He is willingly defiling himself. Now, the Pharisees hear about it. This probably didn't happen like at the party. It isn't like the cops came. But, you know, it's probably a little bit later. And the Pharisees say, hey, we heard you ate dinner with a bunch of uh, sinners. And what's great also is the Pharisees ask the disciples. They, at this point, they're too afraid to go talk to Jesus because every time they go talk to Jesus, Jesus sends them, you know, running with their tails tucked between their legs, right? Every time they challenge him, Jesus is like, well, have you thought about this? And they're like, no. Shoot, he got us again. So they're like, let's ask the disciples. They seem dumber. Which was true. Still is. Anyhow. Um, no. Anyhow. He says, go ask the disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Now, I want you to notice something here. What's their concern? What's their concern here? It's a policy issue. If you read through the Gospel of Matthew, you know what you're going to know, or any of them really, what you're going to notice, the religious leadership always want to talk about the policies. There's a rule here. Eating with sinners. I'd like to discuss it. What about marriage and divorce? What about Sabbath rules? What about hand washing? The Pharisees love to come up and talk about all the policies. And there are always policies that are establishing moral high ground. Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? Us versus them. Policy over people. But you know what's crazy? What does Jesus see? People. He sees people. And you know, that kind of makes sense. You, you remember in Colossians 1 where it says Jesus was present at the creation of all things? Does it ever strike you he made you? Like when they were sitting down and they were going to design a Mike Traben, the Trinity. They're like, what do we have left? And they're like, not, not a lot. Uh, you know, we got, I don't know. They're like, well, we can throw together one more. Nah, they said, you know what? I want to make a Mike Traben. I love this guy. I love this guy. I got plans for this guy. I got things I want to do with this guy. Oh, it's going to be great. And 
you know what? On top of everything else, I'm going to give him my image. I'm going to imbue him with my very image. Of course, I do that for everybody. Because I love everybody. And I made everybody, everybody in my image. So when he's looking at Matthew, what's he seeing? Do you think he looks and he goes, tax collector? (laughs) Or does he look and he say, I remember when we made you. Oh, if you knew what I knew, Matthew, of what's going to happen. You are perfectly designed to do what I need you to do. Perfectly designed. You see, when Christ looks, he has every right to walk in as the righteous judge. But instead he walks in as the loving creator and father, doesn't he? He says, I love you. Come with me. The Pharisees say, what's the policy on eating with sinners? You just extract the people out of the policy, and there you got it, right? But I get to sit at home and have my moral oughtness to keep me warm. My, my superiority. I'm right. They're wrong. Us versus them. But there is no them. Did you hear our hymns today? Did you hear what we sang? Seems like I remember these verses popping out. I jotted them down. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Not once upon a time I was a bad guy. Every day, guys, every day, I am wholly, fully dependent on God's grace. And if you think your salvation was something that happened and now you're the good guy and you used to be the bad guy, you were always the same thing. An image bearer in desperate need of God's grace. And you continue to be an image bearer in desperate need of God's grace. And if you look at the people in the world any differently, then you're not looking at them like Jesus did. If you look at them and you see them, if you see tax collectors, sinners, you're just not looking with Jesus' eyes. I shudder to think what eyes you're looking with. They say, what's going on here? There's a policy being violated. When Jesus heard this, so this is the problem. They must have said it too close and Jesus overheard. Or Jesus was doing his magical, miraculous hearing thing, which he does. He knows what you're thinking all the time. Even now, a couple of you. I forgive you. Jesus overheard it, or he heard it. And he says, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician. So again... It's not like he didn't think, he's not declaring Matthew the tax collector good, is he? He's acknowledging this guy's a sinner in need of help. That just wasn't the approach, was it? That wasn't where he started. Did they have a conversation later? I don't know, maybe they did. 
There's another tax collector story, Zacchaeus. He didn't even have to have a conversation. He was so happy that somebody loved him that he said, I want to give back, which kind of sounds like what God's mercy and, and God's love should do, right? If you are overflowing with God's love and grace, wouldn't it make sense that that's what comes out of you? So if that's not what's coming out of me, what am I filled with? He says, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, those who are sick. I, but go and learn what means I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Now, we've heard the Hosea passage read today. It didn't use the word compassion, did it? What did it say? Anybody remember? You can shout it out. It's okay. It's, it's allowed. You're like my classes. You're just like a bunch of sophomores. Come on. Boldly. What's it say? Mercy? What's another one? Doesn't it say something about the knowledge of God? What's it say? Fit back to Hosea 6.6. 6. Or am I just having a, a, a small stroke? It's always possible. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Knowledge of God. So you have various words that are in there. Jesus puts it all together as compassion and not sacrifice. Isn't it interesting that when he's, when he's combining all of these ideas, he takes things like mercy and knowledge of God and makes them interchangeable with compassion? It's striking. I, I, I tend to not mess with the words of the Bible, but then I'm not Jesus. But if he wants to compact Hosea 6 into compassion... He's allowed. And he probably had a reason. And he finishes with this. By the way, I love that. Go and learn what this means. That's, I can, my dad would have said, put that in your pipe and smoke it. And he says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I, my students will tell you how much I love irony in all its forms. I came to call the righteous, not the right, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, any, 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 anybody like me, again, you maybe memorized a few verses out of Romans. How many are righteous? Not none, zero, wait a minute. Hang on. I came to call the righteous, of which there are Zero. See, what's the missing thing here? Why is it that the Pharisees do what they do? I mean, this is the tragedy of the Pharisees. This is the tragedy of them. They're standing here doing what they do because they're convinced they don't need God's grace. They're already good enough. They can't even hear that Jesus is saying, wake up. You're not righteous. What's funny is when he does it in less subtle ways and he looks at them and says, you are a whitewashed tomb that corrupts everything you touch. They say, that hurts our feelings. That's mean. You see, Jesus will tell you when you're wrong when he wants to. But why would he tell the Pharisees and not the tax collector? Got any thoughts on that? 
Because the, the Pharisees already think they have a relationship with him. And he needs them to understand, no, you don't. You have a relationship with, with good behavior. A torrid love affair with good behavior. But that tax collector, you know what he knows? He knows nobody loves him. So when I look at him and say, follow me, he goes, what? What? Jesus said he came to seek and save. Seek and save. I feel like too often the church is on a mission to seek and destroy. We're the big, big moral patriot missile flying through the air. Ready to burst on your evil deeds. I'm not here to minimize sin or say we don't need to reckon with it and have repentance. I'm just saying Jesus seemed to look at the culture. Now, if we're talking about inside the church, maybe it's a different thing. But as we relate, as I am the body of Christ walking in my world, if it's Tuesday and I'm at work and I'm the only one there representing Jesus Christ, which could be, could be the reality, what's my approach? Judgment? Condemnation? What do I do? My, my, uh, my dad, my, dad my, my dad's my hero. I'm going to pull a Traben here and I'm going to start crying. Um, my dad's my hero. My dad, deeply theological man, thought about things. I still remember the day 18 years ago. I remember because it coincided with my kids being born. We were driving past Dallas. Speaking of being the church, we were driving past downtown out to a wedding. And... Uh, he looked over, and we were talking about a new church that had popped up downtown. It was the hot new property, hot new ticket in town. And I was like, oh, have you heard about Reunion Church? He just went, you ever wonder if we just got it wrong? So do you ever wonder if, like, it was supposed to look more like Jesus, like when Peter said, let's build tabernacles, and Jesus said, no way? You ever think maybe we're just supposed to live in a commune and have everything in common. And so do you think these buildings and these big budgets and staffs and you ever you ever think maybe we just got it wrong? And I was like, what are you talking about? I was about eight years into ministry as a pastor, and I was like, you don't get to do that. You don't get to make me question everything. Knock it off. You're almost 70. You're supposed to say, I got it figured out and reassure me. Don't sit there and do that. He's a deeply, deeply thoughtful, philosophical man. Always trying to figure out the best. He's also deeply pastoral. Loved people. Cared about people. He had a, his desk was a disaster. He said, I, other people have a filing system. I have a piling system. And he had this little plaque a friend had made that said, Christ died for people, not paper. <clears throat> and we, he and I used to talk because I worked with Generation X and they didn't want to come to church and trying to figure out how do you get people to the church and a lot of these same questions. What's the approach? And he and I talked a lot about evangelism and evangelism is supposed to be the good news and what do you do and how do you get people in? And I remember at the end of his life, last few years of his life, I began to notice the trend. We'd be together and like, I remember, you know, the, the, the guy driving the, the, the shuttle to the airport. My dad would, 
get in the car and he'd say, hey, what's your name? And the guy would say, you know, Johnny. He'd say, Johnny, do you know that Jesus loves you? Johnny, do you know that Jesus loves you? Now, what happens when you do this is one of two things. One, Johnny thinks, rut row. Why couldn't Steve have picked up this fare? I got a cuckoo cult member in the back seat. And so they go, oh, okay, okay thank you. Um, oh, I need to make a call. You know, like, whatever. The other thing they do is they say, yes, I do know that, I, I do. And my dad would then go, you know Jesus too? Isn't he wonderful? And this became his major interaction in life. When he was basically bedridden, when he was stuck in his little assisted living apartment. It's funny. Anytime I run into somebody who knows my dad, you know what they always say? They always say, your dad, he knew my name. He knew my wife's name. He knew my kids' names. I ran into a guy at an Episcopal church working on his PhD at Dallas Seminary. He said, I knew your dad. You know what was weird? He always remembered my wife and kids' names. I said, I know. You know why? Because he said, you're an image bearer. And Jesus loves you. It was important to my dad. Learn their name, because you're not the group. You're not tax collectors. You're not sinners. You're one person's name. And you were made in the image of a loving God, and Jesus loves you, man. And that's all he had left at the end. When he couldn't get out of his chair, when he was in constant pain, anybody come in the room, give him his meds, take out the trash, he'd go, what's your name? Do you know Jesus loves you? You could do worse. We're about to come to Advent. You heard Mike say it. So here's a little teaser. For today I bring to you good news of great joy, which is for all people. For today is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, God, let us somehow care about right and wrong, but help us to remember that your approach was to, was to invite, was to heal, was to feed. And people were changed by your love rather than browbeating. People were changed by relationship. Relationships that crossed boundaries that seemed unthinkable. Relationships that drew people from groups that were seen as unlovable and unapproachable. You drew those lines. You erased those lines and you drew people across them. Father, I don't want to think in terms of groups or sides or us's and them's, I want to just know that there's us. A planet full of image bearers, created by you and loved by you, and that should be my approach. I trust that you will sort out the wheat and the tares, and the sheep and the goats. But Father, I want to be someone who shows your love, who walks through the world like the body of Christ did. You say, let our good works... Show forth that people may glorify you. 
God, let our good works, let us be known for that. For the fruit of the Spirit. We entrust ourselves to you in Jesus' precious name. That in all things he may have preeminence. Amen.